Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, the Center for Ethics, Race, uh, Ethics and Power Project's uh, first event, hashtag say her name, Breonna Taylor, exclamation point, race, ethics and justice, a dialogue with Beverly Bain, Idil Abdullahi and L. Jones. With the recent grand jury decision to indict on a lesser charge of wanton endangerment in the death of Breonna Taylor, there is an urgency to examine the implications of these actions to fully understand future demands for justice. What does it mean to understand uh, state violence on and against black bodies, black women's bodies and personhood as merely a wanton act? What is the history of such a designation that exonerates the perpetrator of said violence against black women's personhood? Wanton as adjective is defined as of a cruel or violent action that is deliberate and unprovoked. And so in posing the following questions that our speakers will be taking up, uh, we're interest, uh, interested to consider uh, conversations about the confluence of anti-Black violence as it manifests in not only legal procedure and deliberation, but also within popular discourse. And so for this event, I'll begin by uh, giving a brief introduction of our panelists, and then L. Jones is going to grace us with a poem to set the tone, and then we'll go into our discussion. And so our first panelist, uh, Beverly Bain is a, black, uh, is a black queer feminist scholar activist who teaches in the Department of uh, Historical Studies in, the, uh, in Women and Gender Studies at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. She teaches and researches in the area of the black queer feminist radical tradition, black and Caribbean diasporic sexualities, gender, feminism, and post-colonial theories, as well as gender violence and resistance. Beverly Bain is working, uh, currently working on a series of essays on Black radical feminist queer activism in Toronto from the 1980s to the present. Idil Abdullahi is an assistant professor in the School of Disability Studies, as well as the advisor to the Dean in the Faculty of Community Services on issues of anti-Black racism. She is a founding member of the Black Legal Action Center BLAC or Black, and currently serves as the vice chair of the board of directors. Idil has published on a wide array of topics such as mental health, prisons and policing, poverty, HIV AIDS, organizational development, and several other key policy areas at the intersection of black life and state interruption. In, 19, in 2019, Idil co-authored Black Life post BLM and uh, and I know that's actually a typo uh, post BLM and uh, if you could correct uh, it'll if you could correct me on the title because uh, the typo says post BLM and the struggle for freedom uh, but I think that's a typo I'm not entirely sure uh, and she is currently completing her forthcoming book Blackened Madness Medicalization and Everyday Life in Canada also published by ARP Books uh, and then lastly, but uh, lastly, uh, our third panelist is Elle Jones, who is a poet, educator, journalist, and advocate. 
She was the fifth poet laureate of Halifax and the 15th Nancy's chair in women's studies at Mount St. Vincent University. Elle is a 2016 recipient of the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission, Burnley Rocky Jones Award. Elle is a co-founder of the Black Power Hour, a radio show developed collectively with prisoners. Her advocacy and work fights against uh, fights anti-Black racism in Canada, walking in the path of her great-grandmothers who resisted relentlessly. Her, uh, her book of poetry and essays on state violence, Canada is So Polite, will be released in the winter, uh, in the winter from uh, Gasparo Press. And so uh, a very warm welcome to all three of you. Thank you so much for joining me in this very necessary conversation. And so without further ado, I will pass the mic uh, to Elle to share uh, some poetic, uh, some poetic uh, insight. And then uh, we will continue, uh, and then we will uh, jump into our conversation. Thank you, Chris. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Peace. I'm joining you from Jabuktuk, Halifax, in the territory of the Mi'kmaq people, obviously right now in the midst of a terroristic war being waged by white settlers against uh, the Mi'kmaq fisheries. So I just want to acknowledge that before I start to speak. Um, this poem is called Have To. After the prince came and married Cinderella, the real end of the story is what they never tell you. The ugly sisters and stepmother replaced her with a slave and they lived happily ever after and no one came to save her. No one came to save her. They wouldn't have to. In fact, the palace bans black women from the balls and has segregated bathrooms and where are the ugly sisters that they teach us in the classrooms? Try to control us with their lies and their ideas of propriety. Our hair is just too wiry, personality too fiery. Rise up, black woman, for we too once were mighty and that's why they never give us the story in its entirety. Just like after Auntie dies and her family reads her diary and discovers her lifelong companion was of the lesbian variety. It all takes place quite quietly. They say that beauty's white, just like dove and just like ivory. And since they say that God's a white man, no one sees the irony. And there's another black trans woman died with no inquiry. Just the way of this society. Black mother on the news five minutes past her son's expiry, crying with no privacy. She shouldn't have to. We shouldn't have to, but we do. Still holding up the world because we remain the mule and we were canceled by their culture when they were still in school. But when we get on Twitter, they go and change the rules. The facial recognition technology got our faces all confused. Guess they'll charge us interchangeably. Mamie Till left the casket open saying, I want the world to see my baby. She shouldn't have to been laboring all our lives and still they call us lazy. Aunt Jemima's off the pancakes, but they still make her cook the gravy. They say that we're too sexual, just like they did in slavery and where the population never meant by public safety. Maybe the only comfort we can find, we say he's singing with the Lord. With a stray bullet from the raid that came through the bedroom wall, the stray blood clot that the doctors ignored in the birthing ward, or we just die more in childbirth because of bills we can't afford. We've poured our lives into their system and never got promoted. They say we've got attitude in the office and think their racism's coded, working in the long-term care home till we all got COVID. And still motherfucking black women went out there and voted. God was so devoted. Our work is never quoted. Invented all the culture, but then they went and stole it. 
You know what else they stole? Serena's points in the open. Serena Bonnelly did a backflip and they said the rules were broken. They say that Cassis Semenya must be a man because she's golden. Oh yeah, they took points from Simone Biles once she started rolling. Use us as a token, but the truth remains unspoken. Label us as angry when we show emotion. Put us in the prison and won't give us any lotion. Won't give us ibuprofen. Don't forget our bones are at the bottom of the ocean. My grandmother had a notion that we ought to count our blessings. Like Michelle Obama in the White House next to a portrait of Sally Hemings. Maybe one day you'll be on the money just like Miss Viola Desmond. Just don't go into the Walmart with your kids to buy some lemons. Dilemma, we even lose when we're a winner. Respectability politics tells us just be a little thinner. Make your nose a little slimmer. But there's another cartoon with a black woman drawn as a gorilla. Still can't be vanilla. And Kylie's a billionaire from white woman drawing lips with filler. Someone wants to see the manager must be Karen or Melissa. And while nobody was watching, another cop became a killer. But since it was a black woman, they all were home for dinner. Massa said that I'm a sinner. So I got my hair a press. Tennis said my cat suit's too revealing. Better find a white address. Want to get a job? Better find a white address. But the social worker's at the hospital taking a baby from our breast. A young black girl in school getting handcuffed at her desk. And they just want to save us with a missionary zest. We come across the border and should be grateful for the West. We shouldn't have to. Built on our oppression. Did you all see the letter of black women leaving Essence? Why are we so happy we're allowed to be the second? I don't give a fuck if Kamala Harris is vice president so she can drop the bombs on another black woman's residence. I believe the change if they could ever show the evidence. We shouldn't have to be the people who protest so we can breathe, but we proceed. We shouldn't have to get to 90 and still be cleaning on our knees, girl, please. But we better Vaseline our faces and tighten up our weaves because Breonna Taylor's family is still out there bereaved. Just like the report on Regis said police should be believed, we're the ones who fight for justice without any time to grieve. And when you're a Black woman in society, time's another thief. There's never any statues, plaques, or centerpiece. They'll even bulldoze the graveyard so our spirit can't find relief. And I'm done begging at their table and asking for a seat. Don't give me your apology. It never is complete as long as statues of slave owners continue to line the street. As long as little black girls and women continue to be your meat, don't feed me all your fairy tales and expect me at your feet. And don't ask me to repeat. I shouldn't have to. Thank you, everybody. Great. Oh, <laughs> sorry. No, I'm sorry. I just I I I just received uh, uh, just a quick prompt saying that they need me to unmute. I didn't realize that I was. Uh, uh, but with that, uh, as mentioned, uh, part of I guess what has prompted my sense of urgency to have this conversation, but also with the three of you is precisely because all three of you are doing important critical work on law enforcement and the carceral state. And so mm -hmm. I wanted to begin uh, because one of the things that took me aback when I had seen the grand jury ruling uh, of a lesser charge in the death of Breonna Taylor was uh, it's an unusual circumstance when a civil case is settled 
prior to criminal charges being laid. And so that in and of itself piqued my curiosity. And so one of the first questions uh, that I wanted to pose to the three of you is, what are the imp implications of civil rulings such as wrongful death suits in relationship to what we conceive of as justice in the light of the grand jury decision on uh, regarding the death of Breonna Taylor? And so we could begin with Beverly. Thank you, Christopher. And, and thank you uh, to the Center for Ethics uh, um, for having us and, and, and having this discussion. And thank you to my uh, co-panelists, um, Adil Abdullahi and um, Elle Jones. I'm so honored to be with you on this panel and to be having this conversation, this timely conversation. Um, usually when we, t when we think about uh, a civil suit or civil rulings, usually it means that it ends in compensation of some sort. I mean, ain't nothing wrong with black people being compensated for the violence they experience, except civil suits are not about collective justice. It's against justice, I would argue very strongly. It works to silence those compensated and to prevent any attempts at dismantling the violent policing and oppressive structure in place. It relies on a promise, you know, of a of a tuck here and there in the system, which only reinforces what is already in place, leaving the fundamental feature of white supremacy untouched. It is important to note that Brianna's case, uh, the city paid out the funds, not the police. And in doing so, they remain free of blame, meaning the police and the cops, with one, only one of the officers being charged for letting a bullet fly into the wall, and which meant it could have hit the person next door. In the meantime, several bullets, six to eight, pounded, punctuated the body of Breonna Taylor. And all officers were exonerated for murdering her. Uh, civil suits in the US and Canada is never about the state or policing institutions taking responsibility. There was no admission of wrongdoing on the part of the city or the police in the Brianna's case. So it is about preventing Taylor's family, really what it was about was preventing Taylor's family from suing in the future or in any way holding them accountable or coming back to them to expect something else that be injustice, of course. I think these suits, whether in the US or here in Canada, perpetuates a kind of indulgence and a kind of innocence by the state and police, a kind of naivete that is all about the exercise and perpetuation of coercive power, according to Michel Rolf Troyo. He warns that for those whom the power is exercised over, naivete is a mistake. In other words, we must demand a collective response to black death. Very, uh, very important insights. Uh, I will put it to uh, L or uh, it'll, if you'd like to kind of jump in on this question as well. I'll, I'll jump in um, building off what Beverly said. I also want to look back into history and think about how 
um, early suits in slavery were very much about property cases, right? So not about the deaths of black people, but for example, in the insurance cases, you know, you threw black people overboard and the problem isn't that they died, the problem is a loss of property. And these are very famous cases, right? That have shaped um, how slavery took place. Um, the notion that, you know, you could like, if we think of how sex workers um, that you can't necessarily charge for rape, but then theft of services will come into play. Exactly. So there's always this way that this kind of discourse of value and property and money becomes activated, particularly in response either to the black body or the sex worker's body, the body that's seen as outside the body politic or outside of the public. And so I really want us to trace the civil suit um, with Brianna back to these ideas of settling insurance claims or masters saying the problem with you beating my slave is that you damaged my property. The problem with you raping my slave is that you've taken this person out of my service. Um, Sadia Hartman in Scenes of Subjection talks about these kind of cases, right? How the law of slavery became based around these particular <coughs> kinds of cases where often at issue was this notion of property. So I would suggest that that's being continued in this, that you can simultaneously say there's some kind of harm done that we can think of a property harm, um, some kind of harm that, okay, maybe there was neglect, but at the same time, it's not the death that matters. So you separate out the death of the body, some different acts so that the act in itself may be negligent, but it doesn't matter that she died. And I would trace this to this whole legal history of anti-blackness as well. I think Beverly laid out extremely well um, so many of the issues with that. So that was really all I had to add on to that. Um, and of course, black people get caught in that because there's this notion that, um, you know, we want to get what we can get out of the moment of justice. So we see this with human rights cases, right? Where people are like, well, maybe I can get this corporation to give me like 5,000 bucks for racial profiling me. And in return, they'll buy my silence or, you know, I won't speak out publicly. Um, and then the notion becomes, we only do these things because we're looking for money. So we can't win in these kind of cases that the very fact that um, there's a value put on this that we end up taking, as Beverly said, becomes completely absented from a notion of justice and it becomes more or less the price of doing business. Um, one can almost imagine that they could also, for example, get at the cost of the bullets, you know? Like, oh, well, the real problem is the cost of the weapons that they had to use to shoot into Brianna. Like that's really the problem, but not that she died. So everything matters and everything has value except the actual life of this black woman in this kind of equation. And I think this really shows that um, rather than the notion of there's a different kind of justice which involves honoring her life and not just in this notion of how um, black names also become commodified which we can talk about differently um, we can talk about later on I don't want to get into that full conversation but um, part of the commodification becomes a list of names that black death itself becomes commodified and, and fetishized and weaponized and becomes a source for other people to get fame and attention from as we get you know neoliberal activism that's built upon these names and so then you get uh, a retrenchment into this notion of property and money and everything again, but this actual woman's life. So then the next stage of this is the way that death itself becomes commodifiable and black death becomes a commodity, particularly for a neoliberal activist uh, society that um, the Sean Kings of the world or whoever can then use to further these kind of careers. So I'll, I'll mm -hmm. leave that comment there. And so with that, uh, Idle, your thoughts in response to this question. Uh, thanks again, Chris, and thanks for having me. There's not much to say, because I feel like Bev just gave a paper and Elle gave a poem and a paper. Um, so <laughs> I think what I'll just do is I'll, 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 say, I'll say very little. Um, so I think what I want to make really clear is, I think for many of us, we know that um, judgments and settlements do not address the root problem, rather, what they do is they ameliorate what is 
or what might be an immediate condition for the family. And I think that it's important that we recognize that. I think it's important that we think through what the costs are of even going through these processes. So I know that often we like to um, really kind of blow up the, the issue at a sort of a more abstract level. Absolutely, we know that it doesn't get us justice. And I think that that's important to recognize. And that's also not the purpose. The state is never going to be the space that we are to seek justice from. I think, however, when I think about the Canadian context and in the work that I do in the context of individuals who have, um, who have fatal interactions with the police, I think part of what we have to understand is that unless the police officer is charged with a crime, the reality that you'll be able to seek civil, lit seek civil litigation is limited. Or actually, it's not even limited. It's not going to happen. So if, in fact, we don't see the value in people's life, we can never understand an issue as a wrongful death. And so in the book that um, Dr. Ronaldo Walcott and I talked uh, co-wrote together, we talked a bit about this idea of, of enumeration and, and the calculations that the state um, makes on and against black bodies. And I'm using the word black body very specifically in this context because we are talking about wrongful death and what happens in the context of death. And so to that end, we invite the readers to really think about the ways in which the state enumerates and calculates black life and black bodies. And so what we know is regardless, there will never be a settlement that will be able to articulate in our death what we lacked in our lives. Now that said, I, I think that it's important for us to think about also um, in my research for this talk that I was unable to find really other than Viola Desmond in very many cases, right? What is um, restitution in a civil case um, in Canada, particularly in the context of death at the hands of police. So again, I wanna turn this question on its head a little bit and also recognize that if we are not seen as fully human and living, in what ways would we expect the state to honor us in death while also holding the nuance of what it means in that moment for often, if we're talking about black people, if we're talking about black queer and trans people, we also talk, have to talk about who those families may be, given that we understand the socio-political and socio-economic indicators, which tell us that black people are, are at the bottom of all of those. Right. So I can appreciate why, um, to some degree, a $20,000 or $50,000 settlement may ameliorate a condition. Um, and in doing so, to really think about what that means for that family, while certainly knowing that um, a, a settlement does not change the root cause, a settlement is not a response to justice, a settlement does not even necessarily illustrate or is indicative of our lives. And I think, again, I want to come back in the Canadian context. Many of us for the first, first time ever watched um, the, the, the trial because of COVID publicly of DeFonte Miller even, for example. That process alone tells me that there will never be anything that we, based on the way the state works, the way the legal system works, nothing can ever make the conversations that even happened in that process. Um, there's no way to pay that back, right? There's no way to do that. What is restitution for rape? What is restitution for death? This is what we have to also consider um, within these conversations. And so I wanted to come back to uh, this question because the second question that I had, we've uh, we've touched we've touched on it somewhat uh, in terms of uh, 
a question that I've been thinking through is uh, how uh, civil rulings undermine pursuits for accountability from law enforcement uh, in the realm of the criminal justice system. And I think part of the reason why uh, this question, question has been sticking in my head is precisely that it's almost as if they've set a, set a new normal, if you will, or a new norm in terms of how might how one might seek uh, uh, amelioration or renumer, uh, or uh, or reparation in some way, shape, or form, and I think uh, what uh, it'll what you're meant uh, what you're highlighting for us is that we need a nuanced analysis of what that might mean on a case by case basis, in terms of uh, how. Uh, victims' families understand what would be reparative in face of the loss of a loved one. And so I'm wondering what uh, the three of you uh, are thinking about, uh, thinking in terms of this question. Okay, I'll, um, can you hear me? Yep. Beverly. Okay, um, I'll start by saying, first and foremost, you know, this issue of accountability, I mean, Yes, um, I think we want accountability. Um, what, how we want accountability or what we mean by accountability becomes the question. Um, you know, and I, I think um, a lot of activists in the US here in Canada, I mean, people like Andrea Ritchie and, and, and Miriam Kaba have been talking about the context of accountability. I think when we think of accountability, uh, for the individual, I think it must be placed within the context of the collective, because justice for one, for, for an in, I mean, there can never be justice for that individual, um, because justice means an entire restructuring, um, meaning, you know, a movement towards abolition of the institution as it exists. We cannot focus on. Um, uh, individual compensation as some kind of a of uh, 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 a judicious way of dealing with this, because in fact, as I said before, civil suits are not meant to actually hold the institutions accountable. It's not meant to do to to change. It's not meant to do anything other than to maintain the power of the institution, to continue to reinforce it, to continue to sustain it, right? Um, I mean, the system that killed Breonna Taylor, according to Kaba and Richie, is not set up for the purpose of, you know, providing justice, right? So we can't expect accountability from the system in a particular way. We can ask, we can demand certain things to the collective. And in so doing, the individual is recognized and compensated in that moment. But that kind of recognition, um, even if it may mean money, um, should not be the priority, at least, I mean, in the bigger sense. I mean, one cannot tell an individual family how they should seek, you know, to be um, repaired in this, in, in, in this process. But I think we can, in addition to that, look at something much larger. So we, yes, so we want police and their institutions to be accountable. We want police officers to be held accountable by 
literally having to admit and to say the names of those individuals that they kill, walk with it on their chest, right? To answer for those killings, to be fired from their jobs, right? To be disarmed. I mean, those are things that actually speak to the collective and that, you know, we want. But often these things don't happen, right? Because black lives are so deeply intertwined in the maintenance of the carceral institutional process. And for us thoroughly to be free and, and have livable lives, we must work to abolish these institutions and these practices. This is only going to happen if we maintain a collective um, focus in terms of what accountability is, that it must be about justice and justice is about, you know, um, abolition of the carceral state and police. In the meantime, I think, you know, in terms of, you know, repairing uh, an accountability, I mean, you know, we can continue to demand, you know, that uh, police be disarmed, they lose their jobs, etc. But I think we must focus on the long term in terms of the collective of moving through the process of focusing on, you know, um, defunding, having money go back into communities, black communities to become more, uh, to create more sustainable for sustainability for those communities to ensure that um, black women are able to access jobs, that black women are not constantly being policed. They only come in, they only appear in the frame when they are being policed by, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, various forms of carceral institutions, um, but their lives don't matter otherwise. Their, their lives become invisible otherwise. I mean, we can say, you know, with Breonna Taylor, and as we have seen with others like, um, um, uh, uh, um, like uh, um, uh, the woman who died here, uh, Paquette, we just Koshinsky Paquette, that their lives only become visible when they're dead. And in that, and in death, um, you know, they also become taken up within the corporatized, as, as um, uh, Elle said, in the corporatized neoliberal context. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, later. So um, accountability should not be what we strive for unless we are striving for it within a collective, uh, politicized, um, you know, uh, context of abolition. Al, I'm curious uh, what, your uh, what your thoughts are given uh, Beverly's analysis. I think um, there's almost two competing thoughts that we have to try and hold in place. And one is of course, as abolitionists, and Marion Kaba has talked about this, is our solution really that um, we should just equitably distribute punishment, right? So we talk about carceral feminism, this idea of um, trying to push us to move beyond the idea that prison mm. is a, a solution to sexual violence and that there is an accountability to harm that can take place outside the prison's and similarly, there's a kind of carceral blackness that takes place where we're like, well, you didn't charge the cops. Well, you know, black people get this much time just for having like weed and here this cop killed someone and they didn't get that much time. But of course that leads us to the rhetoric of, so what if prison was all cops? Like, what would that mean for abolitionists? Like, what if the prison, if the fastest exploding population of people going into prison was police, you know, would that 
um, fit our abolitionist goals. So on the one hand, as abolitionists, we understand that um, turning to the carceral state to prosecute or somehow hold cops accountable, in fact, just ends up leveraging and continuing the very same system mm -hmm. that we're trying to get rid of. At mm -hmm. the same time, mm -hmm. however, we also know, so held in tension with this idea, is that we also know that Black people are the people who have consistently been denied any kind of uh, justice. So I think of South Africa, you know, um, we're the people that have to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission because God forbid should people go to prison who harm us. God forbid should people lose their land who harm us. And in fact, as we know in South Africa, white people hold more land and capital now than they did under apartheid. Um, they didn't even show up for the Truth and Reconciliation hearings, right? Like black people sat in court by themselves and cried about what was done to them as white people did not even attend. And then there was a both-siderism played where it's like, and also Winnie Mandela, like she was bad too, you know? Um, and these are the kind of processes that we get told is justice that only get done upon us. And of course, we're at any other population of especially white people. Um, we know that like there's a completely different system in place. So how do we also hold that idea that these kind of ideas of forgiveness or reconciliation only belong to those of us who are told are, again, we're not worth getting justice and what happens to us is somehow insignificant. And then of course we know that what happened in South Africa then gets exported to indigenous people and exported as this kind of process that we're supposed to use all over the place as though it was successful in South Africa without us even talking about how unsuccessful it was in South Africa and how there were actual wars fought in uh, like in Angola and in Zimbabwe where there was actually military defeats of white people, but they don't want us to know that. So we're supposed to believe in this truth and reconciliation process as though we were always the junior partners in this and not people that actually were in the position to run white people off the land and couldn't do it because of like global capitalism and the IMF and all of these things. So mm -hmm. I just don't have an answer to that because I don't know how to hold the difference between I believe in abolition and I don't believe ultimately that I would direct my activism towards police being put in jail because we're trying to end prisons, but also that black people are always figured as the ones that need to be forgiving, including in Dylan Roof, you know, where it's like two seconds after, you know, we have to um, perform forgiveness or um, what was the other case where the brother was like forgiving the person in, in court, remember this? And there was a big to do over it. Um, so with the, the woman who shot, the, the female cop who shot the person who was sitting on his couch, there's so many of, of these burst into the apartment. And remember there was, um, the brother had seemed to have forgiven her in court. You know, like these uh, performances of blackness, which are again about how black people are able to enter the frame and when we're allowed to be seen either as criminals or as forgivers. Um, I wanna talk specifically though also about a case in Nova Scotia to think about like where, mm -hmm. What our feelings are on these kind of reports. So I don't know if people are familiar with the case of Santee Rail. So this was a black mother who was in January shopping at Walmart with her two very young children. Um, she was accused of shoplifting. She was putting stuff on her stroller as she shopped, which I'm sure mothers listen to know that this is what you do. Um, floor workers and police approached her. Um, she defended herself, said she wasn't stealing. Um, and then you know, in the disturbance, they beat her to the ground. She got a concussion, a broken wrist, which they subsequently handcuffed, lacerations and bruises to her faces, to her face. And of course, she was charged with causing a disturbance, assault to an officer because she uh, they put hands on her child as well. They grabbed her child and she scratched the face of one of the officers. Um, she got assault, resisting and causing a disturbance. And I just want to pause here to point out how like wanton, what is it, wanton danger, want, want, wanton endangerment. Wanton endangerment is like mm -hmm. oh my gosh we can't even make that when you shoot someone mm -hmm. but like standing in a walmart 
causing a public disturbance. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, there's like the bar is so low for like what black people can get charged with, like right, like we can just be chargeable at all points. Like we're in a state of being pre-charged at any one moment. Um, I say this because the CERT report, which is our version of the SIU, um, came out last week on Santina, and I urge people to read it as a horrific monument to misogynoir and anti-blackness. Um, so this report is all about the loudness of Santina's voice. So it's claimed that the reason why the floor workers went to get the police is because she was speaking loudly and emotionally on the phone and they feared therefore she was a danger to her own children. So now we get this rhetoric that because she was loud on the phone, um, we thought she was an unfit bad mother who might be dangerous. So we just had to get the police involved. And then the police are made innocent. Mm -hmm. And there's this notion of, oh, they only entered the store to tell her that she shouldn't shoplift and if she had anything to put it back because they didn't want to charge her. So as if police enter the store to like, you know, you're caught robbing someone's mm-hmm. house and like, oh, Elle, can you just fix the broken window? But we're supposed to believe this kind of uh, innocent discourse. And then the report goes on to continue to tell us about Santina's voice. So first we heard about her tone of voice on the phone and because she yells at the police when they accuse her of stealing um, and forcefully says she did not steal and then calls them racist. Mm -hmm. These become reasons why the beating on her is justified, right? So the whole report is basically like she was loud. She cursed at the police. She's a bad mother. Um, You know, she's this coarse ghetto like all those implications, right? They even mention her acrylic nails. So, you know, we have all, every anti-Black detail. There is no space for it. And this is in five pages. There's about two sentences devoted to the police and the rest of it is just devoted to look at this trash Black woman and she got what she deserved. And I say that to say that, um, sure, yes, the cops were not recommended for charges in this case. This case, um, We don't even as such care about that because just the wording of, I'm not saying we don't care, but the point is the wording of the report is in itself so violent and so distressing that we're still back on this notion of representing this black woman's voice while not speaking to her, like her voice isn't anywhere in the report is telling her story. It's only there as the criminal angry black voice. This is very much what Sadia Hartman says, right? That we only enter the frame when we can become the criminal and we have no agency or will or presence when we are the victim, right? And this is just a textbook explanation of that. I say that to say that to me, the cure, if that report did all that and then said, and we charged the cop, that would not be any kind of justice. That report would still stand. If uh, that report did all that and said, but we're gonna give Santina um, reparations, the report would still stand. What is violent in the report is in itself the way that Santina is represented, the way that she is seen. And what would justice look like to undo that report? What do we do now with the, this image that has been deliberately put out there by this um, you know, CERT committee that has, has, has read and framed and charged this black woman publicly with her behavior? That cannot be undone. And it wouldn't matter if we go back and, and recharge the police. It wouldn't matter if we, she can sue Walmart, she will probably, and she will probably get compensation from Walmart. Um, they certainly wouldn't cough up video, so they knew that they were going to get sued. You know, she may be able to get something from the police for the damages. The report doesn't even address, like, the fact that they handcuffed her broken wrist. That may all be coming, but that report still stands there as a monument to a particular form of violence. And I think that report stands to the ultimate injustice. Um, no matter what would happen in that case, no matter what could come, no matter what appeals, um, there is a new act of violence that has come in place, which is um, the way that she is pinned in that report. And I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what justice would look like going forward from that report. I don't know what recovery would look like. And I don't think any of it even would necessarily be how I feel towards the police at that point, because this has now become so public that any kind of justice would have to be, how do you rehabilitate 
her image in the public? How do you let her speak in public? How do you let her voice be heard in public? How do you give her back humanity in public? Um, so these kind of questions, um, that, and I guess what I'm saying is also the ongoing violence of engaging in the system that you go to cert to try and get justice, you know, to get the cops held accountable. And what you get is a re-traumatization of more violence, another assault, and this time an assault through the report. Um, and this is what's being asked of us um, when we're told to go into these systems to get justice. So the clear answer is, of course, that our justice can never lie um, in their version of truth and their report. This is another form of the violence of the paperwork, as I always call it, right? Like that mm -hmm. this violence is done, whether through the child welfare system, um, mm -hmm. where we have like files kept on black women that follow them through life and intergenerationally follow them. Um, you know, the neglect of paperwork, like where Abdul Abdi is being deported because they just didn't get him citizenship and this kind of violence in a report as well. So um, I can't turn to any of that to find justice. I cannot, the people that would write that report are incapable of justice and they are incapable of seeing black women or black life. Sorry, that was a really long answer. I got angry. Oh, no, no. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> no, it was, um, uh, no, when, you, you raised some when, very, when, very important questions to consider precisely because one of the things, uh, I guess we could call it almost like a minefield that we're navigating is this realm of representation that also becomes a site where these violences are produced. So whether it's through the report or whether it's through media representation. And I mean, there's all, again, there's also a longstanding history of this. And so it's not even just a new phenomenon, like uh, where we began this conversation talking about the ways in which we can link these incidents of state violence, uh, in particular against black women's bodies to slavery. This is a very planto like planto uh, uh, plantocratic logic, uh, plantation logic that's playing itself out. It's just that the medium has changed. And so, you know, in the eight, you know, uh, in the nineties, the question was how do you discount uh, videotape as documentation as evidence? And so we saw that with the Rodney King case where uh, the defense attorney basically would pause the videotape and reinterpret King's body. Uh, Eric, uh, Eric Alex, uh, sorry, Elizabeth Alexander does a great analysis of this in her article, Can You Be Black and Look at This, where she talks about the ways in which you manipulate even like evidence that is documenting they are beating him 50 plus times but instead manipulating how one gazes at the image then becomes a way of suggesting, oh, well, see, he looks like he might be resisting. When we know, at least I know for myself, if you hit me, my body's going to contort in some way, shape or form. That ain't resistant, that's just my body saying, ow, with a big physical gesture. And so, but what we see, and, uh, and uh, thank you, Elle, for bringing this up is that because we also saw this in the Breonna Taylor case as well, where uh, it's the narration uh, of the incident that also does a kind of a second kind of form of violence. I see it'll nodding, so I wanted to see if you wanted to jump in here. So I forgot the question because I think you asked it about 20 minutes ago, but oh. I, think, I think there are a few things I'll add. Um, 
I hear lots about Brianna Taylor and I knew that obviously that, that this is the context of the conversation for a very particular reason. Um, and we're talking about ideas of wrongful death and suit and accountability. Um, but I guess the question that I want, want us to ask is what happened to Sumaya Del Mar? Mm -hmm. So for those who don't know, Sumaya Del Mar was a black Muslim trans woman um, who was killed here in Toronto and we still don't know what happened to her. We don't, we don't have that information. And so again, while a person like Brianna Taylor um, is really familiar to all of us, given the ways in which media works and the US context, um, I wanna bring this back to something really local and say that we haven't even got to an, a, place, a place of accountability because there's been no inquiry. There's been no inquiry into what happened to Samaya Del Mar. There's been no history of that. And that, in fact, that that took people who were Samaya's chosen family and friends to even be able to do online activism insofar as to have her, have her life within the Canadian context and within the kind of Canadian fabric around the deaths of Black people and Black trans women in particular. And so I'm thinking of that in this particular context. And I'm also thinking about the ways in which when you sent me this invite that I didn't ask that question and how mm -hmm. I'm also accountable and implicated in that. Um, but more importantly, I think than all of that, I often say that footage will never free us insofar as our example today is about Rodney King, but I also want us to give the example of Abdurrahman Abdi in Ottawa, Ontario and Hindenburg Street that we saw got beaten um, on camera um, by Daniel Montesan being punched in his head, et cetera. Um, and we see the outcome of that. I also want to remind us of people like Andrew Loku that we've seen footage. So again, I think that, I, I guess what I'd like to continue to reinsert into this conversation is there's no way for us to sort of think about what happens in our death until we continue to reckon with the fact that our lives are seen as non-human and unhuman here and I'll quote from um, uh, Queer Returns, where there's a whole section that speaks about, and I may even be wrong, I've been teaching all day, but I know that Ronaldo Walcott talks about Black people dying differently, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think in the very way that we talk about accountability and capturing, um, in the ways that we think through some of these things, in the ways that um, Black people in Canada are consistently cast anew um, in the very ways that we don't remember that beyond Sumaya Del Mar, that there are many other Black trans women here who we haven't even got to a place to reckon with their death because we have not even began to inquire about their deaths. And I think that's the only thing that I would add um, to that. Mm -hmm. Beverly, you had something you were going to say earlier and I'm dying to hear it. <laughs> Me too. Sorry, sorry. This is great. Thank you both. I mean, I thought. I mean, really, really thoughtful. Um, um, uh, um really, um, really significant. Um, I want to actually um take up from something you were saying, L, and also you know, Adele, um, in terms of black women, because I think this. I think there's something specific to, and as we with black women or those identify as women. And um, it'll, it'll touched on it, is that we disappear. I mean, let's think about, let's just think about for a minute what happened to Brianna and let's trace that back. Let's think about 
Brianna was shot eight times. The question becomes, her boyfriend was shot once. He's alive, she's dead. The question becomes, what happened in that, that she ended up dead, being shot eight times? Uh, you know, did, did, it, did it meant that she wasn't, she didn't, she wasn't visible? Um, uh, it's clear in the way that black women appear and disappears very conveniently within discourse, but also, you know, um, you know, in, 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 you know, when we're talking about livability and death and life and death, is that black women appear, as we see, in the context of commodification and commodities to line, you know, people's pockets, but they die without an unquestioning, without any kinds of questioning happening as to why did she end up dead? He's alive. What happened? They claimed the place was dark. How did they see her in the dark that they can kill her eight times but not see him? What is that about? Who gets seen when and in what context? And when does Black women stand in uh, for the protection of all Black people in terms of uh, who's responsible for sustaining Black life? but does not have access to that life. Does that make, is that make sense uh -huh. what I'm trying to say? And I think, I think that's something that we also need to grapple with. Thus, people like uh, Sumaya Delmar, a trans woman who identifies and lives as a woman can disappear off the face of this earth because she's trans, because she's black, because she's a woman, and no one up to now can answer to what has happened to her. Right, so she's not even written within the text or the pages, other than this woman was found dead, and that was the end of it. That's the end of the story. There is no other history other than the ones that we, who knew her, people who know her, can give her life. And I think that's the issue. We have to give those stories life. And I just want to to speak to something you were saying about. Um, um, uh, the case in uh, Nova Scotia, remind me her name again. Um, Santina Rail. Santina Rail. This is, this is not new. In 1992, um, Audrey Smith in Toronto, actually there was a similar situation where Audrey Smith was um, uh, strip search in the middle of downtown Toronto. And uh, uh, we, there was a, a, a fight for a hearing um, to hold the police accountable so that we can actually hear what really happened because the police's position was that she raised up her clothes in public and strip herself, right? Again, the sort of um, uh, 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 presenting of black women as vulgar, hypersexual, threatening, and that her sexuality in itself is scary. Imagine the black woman lift up her clothes and pull down her underwear. And of course, I, I guess they all got scared, right? I mean, that's the implication. So that was the actual story in, uh, in the hearing um, where she was accused of actually um, threatening the police just by her physical body, just by her nakedness, and that she was threatening them and they, she, she um, caused them fear and therefore she was a threat. And, the whole, and it was really very much tied to, um, um, to, to 
to drugs, that she must have been down there selling drugs. She was Jamaican. She must be a drug mule. She must be a prostitute. And of course, she is a criminal, right? All of these labels. So that is in a document as well, in terms of how she was presented at this hearing, how the police actually um, was presented as terrified white men and a white woman, right? Who um, was asking her a few questions and she stripped herself when in fact they stripped her publicly because there were passers-by people who said they saw this woman being stripped searched in public and they were shocked, right? Nevertheless, what got documented is that this black woman was scary, was terrifying, and by all means could have been killed by the police and would have been illegitimate because she was, she presented a danger just by her physical appearance, right? That was a clear example of how a physical female body can be scary that, desi that, desi that deserves um, elimination. Uh, and in that moment, it didn't happen. Um, but in other moments, it would be okay if it did happen, right? As we saw in the Brianna case, about she deserved elimination even though in all senses, she wasn't, as, I mean, she was presented as not even existing in the first place, much less being able to be killed, right? So we see all of these things happening, which means, which is so fraught and which also speaks to why the law itself and all of its, you know, mechanisms cannot be a place for us to attain and obtain justice or even to attempt to seek justice. That yes, individual, we can make individual claims here and maybe get some money here and get some money there, but that does not allow us to focus on something much larger and much more uh, uh, collective in a sense that actually breeds something bigger. Um, I mean, documenting, and I mean, I think one of the things that come to mind when, when we talk about how do we then, you know, um, recoup or re, is that we ourselves have to recreate, you know, and I think people like Dion Brand and people like, Norbisi Phillips and people um, like Christina Sharp and all of these um, women have talked about how do we then re, um, recreate those lives? How do we create those incidences, those, those accounts? How do we rewrite the script in other words? How do we reproduce um, women like, and I mean like say her name is, some, is a way to to kind of bring into the frame a woman in a particular way, you know, by memorializing her, by making her visible, by making her human. How do we humanize women? Um, apart from what is already in place, we can change that, but we can begin to recreate and rewrite ways in which we speak to the lives of women who have been uh, unjustly um, taken away from us, who have been murdered, or who have been um, uh, um, damaged and killed and, and, and brutalized by the police, how do we start taking control of the narrative? I'm sorry, Christopher, mm -hmm. I'm ruining your question uh, sets. Oh, but... no, not at all. 
also wanted to jump in here to even talk about um, how the WNBA, of course, all season had been um, politically leading, particularly on these issues with Breonna Taylor and other um, Black women facing police brutality. And then, of course, um, all the attention was paid when the NBA had their ridiculous aborted, we're going to strike for one day, but then we can't carry it through because Obama basically got off his ass. You know, Obama got his, off his ass like twice this year. You know, once was to screw Bernie and the second was to screw the worker strike, you know, like... Um, Someone, as someone else said, the only strike Obama likes are drone strikes, right? Um, but this mm -hmm. idea of um, women mm -hmm. had this particular momentum, this particular um, cause of social justice, particular way mm -hmm. of advocating. Um, it's only legitimate when it moves to the NBA. And then the male athletes, of course, because of capitalism, because of um, consumerism around the body, because of the playoffs, because of all these things, um, were unable to turn that into a worker strike. And then, of course, we got this very performative, like, you can choose which phrase you want on your jersey. You can have Black Lives Matter or education liberation, like just embarrassing, right, mm -hmm. within like, the NBA plantation. But in what Bev was saying, um, not only did that, of course, mm -hmm. um, completely disappear what the actual protest was, but it also disappeared the woman of the WNBA, who of course make so much less, have so much less fame, but had so much more commitment to social justice, mm -hmm. teaching the men of the NBA how to do this, and then um, how they again disappeared from that frame. So I just also wanted to raise that even in terms of the sort of the way this public momentum gets taken up. Um, so sorry, sorry, Christopher, go ahead, ask your next no, question. No, 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 no need to, no, I'm, I'm loving the free flowing of this conversation. In fact, uh, that was the, that was the ultimate goal was to have a very organic kind of conversation because I know I especially say, when you put me Y'all are a, amazing. When you put me, <laughs> like when you put me, Beverly and Idle into a room, we can talk and talk and talk and so, um, I feel like we should have said that we all, that, that we know and love each other. Yes. Yeah, we, we do. do. We do. I'm, de um, I'm just enjoying this so much and hearing, hearing, I mean, I, th I just think this is amazing. Thank you very much, Christopher, for hosting us. And so, uh, I mean, the final question, and this is more, uh, and kind of also secretly leading us into the Q&A because we're now uh, nearing five o'clock, but, uh, uh, one of the questions that uh, someone actually, uh, not on YouTube, but actually like texted me personally and was asking if it'll could expand a little bit more on kind of the ways in which our gaze towards the American context ends up overshadowing what's happening in Canada. And I wanted to make clear that part of the reason, despite the fact that in the title of the event, we're talking about Say Her Name, and talking about a current case, one of the things that I wanted to underscore is that anti-Blackness, anti-Black policing, and responses to it, these are a global phenomenon. And so I kind of wanted to, uh, wanted to stress that and maybe perhaps put that out there because one of the things that we're thinking through are what are the, what are the sorts of solutions or alternatives for justice that we might consider and obviously, because even though Black Lives Matter can be a global movement, as well as uh, anyone who uh, is, uh, understands themselves as an abolitionist, contact, the context produces different kinds of results and different kinds of conversations. And so what kind of conversation is happening in Canada that is specific, I guess, and regional to Canada? 
And I'm wondering, Idle, if you could uh, speak to that because you want because you're uh, one of the folks that kind of brought us to like focus on Canada in particular. Um, so I think to to put it really simply, um, in in the context of the Black Canadian Studies canon here, um, what I've learned is that there is a way in which, um, and I'm going to cite quote. Um, we make black people anew in Canada, period, unquote. That really sticks with me. Another thing that we that happens often, and in fact that I implicated myself in this conversation around my own reproduction of that, is that um, obviously I love you and I know you and I would do a panel with you any day because I love talking to you anyway. Um, but I think what happens, what happened obviously is this sort of auto discourse where you know, there's this panel, the issue is important, the issue is about Black women, Black trans women, the implications of state relationships. And at no point did I think, and I'm going to quote again, something happens here, unquote. And so what I think this does is it speaks to the consistent absented presence of Black people in Canada, even including those of us who have the best intentions of this being the kind of work that we do. And so when I think about you know, my evocation today of Sumaya Del Mar, I also think about the need to evoke a person like Angelique. I also think about the need to evoke the very many women, particularly those folks that are left behind in ways that we don't think about that. And so indeed, um, anti-Blackness is global, sexism and misogyny is global, heteropatriarchy is global. Um, and in all of that, I think it's still important to situate the ways in which there are particularities here, that there are specificities here, and that we can go from the general to the specific, um, and that can begin from a place of Black Canada, um, and that we don't necessarily need to be the accessory or the add-on or the dessert or the appetizer or by way of, but rather that we can do a both and with approach. We can absolutely acknowledge that anti-Blackness is global and that in this particular location, in this particular Bivyak space, that what we note is that something does happen here that is particular to this space. It is particular to this space that people know the name of George Floyd and they don't know the name of Sumaya Del Mar that people know the name of George Floyd and they don't know the name of Abdurrahman Abdi, that people know the name of George Floyd, but that people don't know the name of Andrew Loku. And there's ways in which blackness is constructed here in Canada, particularly given the very diasporic nature of black people in Canada, that also complicates the way in which we understand black people. So it's easier to say that um, in very many ways, you know, Abdurrahman Abdi was a Somali Canadian it makes sense to say that um, Sumaya was um, you know, a Somali trans woman, that Andrew Loke, who was a Sudanese Canadian, right? And so we also have to think about sort of the dialogue that is around that, the discourse that is around that, that also seeks to shore up a particular kind of multicultural narrative within the Canadian context that also seeks to disappear quite purposefully what is happening here, right? And so I think about something even 
just to move it slightly away, and I know this is not the intent of this particular conversation, but I think that this example is important. We can think of Rodney King. I invite people to think about Sami Atim as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are just a little over five o'clock and uh, I want to make sure that we give uh, ample time for uh, some questions. Uh, and, okay, so, and so I'm wondering uh, if uh, folks wanted to offer kind of not so much final thoughts, but rather thoughts to carry, uh, carry forward uh, for future conversations. And then I'll go into uh, the chat room the and pull up some questions. Okay, I, I, wanna, I wanna add something to um, what Adele said and, and actually just contextualize it a little bit. Um, I, th I think in terms of my own historical experience, um, I do think there is something specific here. And I do think that specificity actually is and has always uh, been present, particularly in uh, in the in the black feminist in black feminist organizing, and I think often what happens when we talk about blackness, I think the mistake that gets that gets made over and over, and we talk about the black diaspora, it actually cements itself around black men and black gay men. But and it's and what what happens in that process is that the work of black queer feminists in this city gets lost. Like we have been the ones going all the way back to the 70s who have actually um, shaped issues around care. So you know when you said you know in your piece in one of your questions you talk about value. I would say that as feminist, we shouldn't be even considering, in fact, if we trace the work of the Black Women's Collective, it was never value, it was always care. It was never, you know, um, a, a, a representation, it was always liberation and revolution, okay? So these things were always present. We had a particular sensibility and a particular kind of organizing and a particular kind of internal um, politics that got actually um, um, worked within our communities, even though it did, not, it did not reach a particular kind of centralized way of articulating blackness and black feminism and black womanhood. It's not because it's not there. Uh -huh. Right. It's because of certain silences uh -huh. around, you know, um, uh, um, uh, um, archiving uh, certain silences around who gets to produce and to write. But if we read people like Dion and we go back to reading all of her early works, we read people like um, uh, uh, Norvisi Philip. We read we we read the works done by Makeda Silvera and the and the reason at all for even sister vision, we will see that these things have always been present here. We have mm -hmm. a specificity. We have a particularity that is within the Canadian black diaspora, but it's feminist. It is led by women. It is fe black feminist and it's black feminist and queer. 
And I just needed to, to make that very clear. So that Thank is not- Thank you so much for that, Beverly. And I, I know there are questions, mm -hmm. but I just want to add another really quick piece that um, I hope will further illuminate what Beverly's saying. Um, I'm, I'm in that really weird stage of like cleaning up that dissertation. I know someone's going to punch them, punch themselves in the eye, particularly for hearing me, hearing me say this, but um, I, I think Beverly, you're also pointing us to something really interesting about black women, obviously um, from where you and I sit here, um, but also around a, 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 a piece about black queer men as well which i think you're you've also spoken to and what those connections um and and i want to be clear i'm speaking to um toronto because that's what i know of um what are the history so yeah. <laughs> yeah what are and, and this is why i sort of want to add to this what are the histories um and relationships that existed between um black lesbian women um, and black gay men around activism and organizing and correction and accountability that was absolutely beautiful. And in very many ways, as we continue to sort of emerge in this neoliberal space, the ways in which um, the state and sort of these pseudo progressive social justice ideas have actually created a, a, um, a rift and a trespass within those relationships, when in fact it is black lesbian feminists here in this city that have also been the same folks bringing up black gay men who are also doing very important work. So I think I, I just want to stick a pin and, and, and say that because I really appreciate that you made that you made that come to life in a particular way, especially when I think about in my work and, and in the work I'm currently writing, the ways in which black lesbians were written out of black activism, particularly around policing um, and, and policing the lives of black women, policing lives of queer people, queer people and people living with disabilities um, out of the archive, right? So unless we evoke a person like Dion Brand as an activist in the moment, we wouldn't know about Dion Brand or if Dion Brand wasn't an author, if we don't evoke the work of Angela Robertson in particular kinds of ways, if we look in what is the popular archive around things such as the Black Action Defense Committee, we see particular kinds of things that are documented here. And so I think that that's really important to note the ways in which um, sort of cis femininity, but also the way in which homophobia in general um, has had an impact within the Black community. And the ways that specifically, again, neoliberalism has, has sought to erode what those relationships are and were and what those relationships can look like right now. Um, and then the other thing that I just wanted um, to add around some of what you've, well, I forgot now, because I think I took too long on that question. You did. But I want to say really quickly, and then I know we can go to q and I'll come back to you, Adil, when you remember. I, didn't, I want you to get that thought. Um, as we were talking, I mean, something I was thinking about is also expanding this notion of what it means to be dead by state violence as a Black woman. Um, so we can think of, you know, when Viola Desmond died quite early. You know, no, she wasn't killed by police, but one can imagine that the stress of what she went through, the kind of dislocations, those kinds of early deaths are also... Um, a form of state violence when they're occurring because of the stress we suffer from living under this regime. But then as I thought about Viola Desmond, I of course went to that place where we also understand in relationship to what we're talking about that part of the reason why Viola Desmond has come to be this like towering figure of black women in Canada is because it evokes 
uh, something American, right? So we're like, well, she was nine years before Rosa Parks. I'm like, but why are we relying upon the Rosa Parks model to define for us what activism looked like in Canada? So then um, Viola Desmond is made over into a figure that she frankly wasn't. That's not to denigrate her legacy, but Viola Desmond was not a radical black woman engaged in like daily community activism. She was certainly not engaged in the same kind of activities that Rosa Parks was. And now we get this kind of simply isn't. And that doesn't diminish Viola Desmond to say that she was not engaged in those kind of politics or analysis. Um, but because we have to impose this America model, our form of reviving Canadian Black women or Canadian Black histories often becomes a false revival because we just are like, well, we can place this before this American thing as though we didn't have our own model of what was happening. So instead of looking into that history, we're just imposing this narrative. Um, so then I also wanted to Think, my note says Americans suck, but that the, the, <laughs> point, the point was that um, there's a kind of colonization of thought that occurs as well here, right? That there's so many of these sort of famous black American thinkers or feminists. And when you hear them talk, it's basically the Twitter consensus. You know, and I'll say that blankly, right? Because in this colonization of thought, um, you can listen to these famous best-selling world touring black Americans. And that's not every black American, of course, many people doing very vital thought, but often when it's like the ones that are pushed in front of us that are famous, they're not producing anything new. You know, I went and sat in a conference at Harvard and heard nothing that I can't hear around the dinner table here in Canada, yet those were like, the Harvard people that are afforded this kind of discourse that if you're saying it at Dalhousie in Halifax, it doesn't count. And I think we also have to acknowledge that, right? Um, that Dion Brand, who is a global voice, but if Dion Brand were American, we wouldn't be saying, if you like Claudia Rankine, you should also check out Dion Brand. Like we would know that Dion Brand was doing that before Claudia Rankine in a different way. And we wouldn't have to even make that comparison. But we recognize that these kind of marginalizations are what suppress our own ability to even think ourselves and to name ourselves. And then what that leads to in my final point is it then becomes very easy to impose these false people on top of us, which is something we're seeing in this moment where we get this idea of, um, in this moment, we must pay tribute to this figure who actually like had nothing to do with getting us here, um, who wasn't involved in activism. We see this very often, right? That once we don't value that space, once we don't value that work, um, at the moment where it becomes to have some commodity value, usually in the university or in the publishing industry, it's very easy then for people to lay claim to that legacy that they never were part of because we've induced this forgetting about who actually was. So then we get mm -hmm. people being given credit for thought, people being given credit for activism, people being held up um, often damaging people, often people who did a lot in their time to try and suppress the very people whose work they're now trying to stand on the shoulders of um, and lay claim to. And I think we actually do have to name that, right? That when we, it's not just a, simply a question of the archive and we go, oh, you know, what a shame, like we aren't reading this book or what a shame we don't know about this person. It's actually an altering of our consciousness and being and thought when we lose access to what brought us here. And the state is always trying to induce that amnesia upon us so that we don't have access to that thinking so that we think we're doing it. And it really leaves us open then to exactly what leads into these very neoliberal forms of appropriating and taking our work because we haven't been given access to what that looked like and who was doing it. So I also wanted to add that. And this is of course this massive danger in this moment where we have Black Lives Matter, but you know, um, Black North Initiative um, where you know, West Hall got his money from like mines 
Like he's, he's involved in the most violent, like extractive industries in Canada now being held up as the voice in Black Canada. We have Cisco systems pairing with that, who as Adele has pointed out, are the people that provide the jail communication systems. And this is now what's being held up as this is what we need to turn to. And these people are literally invested in the things that kill Black people and are being given all this space to talk about what it would be to reform the system. And we have to be aware of that because that's mm -hmm. a mass danger in this time that the work of Black queer people, the work of Black lesbians, the work of radical Black women is disappeared for a reason. And we have to understand what that reason is. I'll shut up now. Mm -hmm. so and, and, and now I did remember what I was going to say. So please do read out the question. Um, mm -hmm. But what I was going to say about um, the sort of um, historicity of Black women within the Canadian narrative, um, and that's why I referenced the dissertation edits, um, is because I've been reading, well, I, what, I did read the work of um, Barrington Walker, and one of the things that he writes, um, and I quote, is that there's a way that even within the Black Canadian historiography, hist historiographies that we only document the experiences of the elite. And so if we think about that in the context of like power and capital, um, who, who we would even hear stories about likely would certainly not be Black trans women, Black queer women, or even maybe Black women in, in, in very many ways. And so that's the other thing I wanted to say. And on Elle just actually um, ignited a thought in my brain. So thank you, Elle, in advance. When you talked about um, the ways in which we just replace people and not name. So I think it's really important to say that in the comment that I made earlier, um, I was not speaking to some abstract black gay men. Um, I was speaking to a particular t moment in the documentaries and, and, and the information that I've read. So when I'm, when I'm thinking about the moment of bad C and et cetera, I'm thinking of people like Doug Stewart. I'm thinking of people like Courtney. I'm thinking of people like Ronaldo Walcott. I'm thinking of people like Junior. Like these are the people that are in my mind and I just think I, I need to make that really clear. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not talking um, about some abstract person or some fictive relationship between um, Black queer women in the city, Black lesbians specifically in the city, and Black gay men in the city. These are the people that come to my mind when I talk about that. And when I talk about histories and relationships, um, I watched a documentary during COVID that I had the privilege of seeing that really showed me beautiful kinds of relationships. Um, I've learned to be corrected because black lesbian women corrected black queer men who now are correcting also me in particular kinds of ways, right? Um, and so I think that that's important. So I don't wanna make abstract who I'm talking about. I know specifically who I'm talking about and the relationships and connections and history and working together. And some of these people are practitioners. Some of these people are clinicians. Some of these people are artists. Some of these people are academics. Um, and even there are ways in which we construct those identities today as activist identities, largely because we need them to be activist identities, right? But these are practitioner identities that have always done this kind of work. And, and I also just want to make sure that we, that we think about that, that there, this moment may demand us to name people differently because we need their work to do something differently for us and not necessarily because that is how they envision or imagine themselves.